Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Mark, once again to the very first chapter where we will be looking together this morning at verses 12 and 13. That's Mark chapter 1, 12 and 13, and you can find that passage on page 980 in your pew Bibles. This morning we are going to be finishing up with what amounts really to just the prologue of the gospel according to Mark with these last two verses in this section. And beloved, I really believe that it is absolutely critical for us to keep in mind what Mark's objective is here throughout our look together at this particular gospel account. It's there in the very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. And as I've mentioned to you before, Mark is on a mission here. And that mission is to tell us, to communicate to all of those who so desperately need to hear it, the good news about Jesus Christ, who is the declared Son of God. And immediately we must face the implications of that statement. What does it mean that he is the Son of God? He is the one who was longed for by the patriarchs and the prophets. He was the one to whom all the shadows in the tabernacle and in the temple served to point us towards. He was the one who was rightly announced by angels. He was the one who was declared by the voice of the Father, thundering from the heavens to be the beloved Son of the Father, in whom the Father is well pleased. This is the seed of the woman, come to crush the head of the serpent. This is the beginning of the earthly work of the Lamb of God, as He makes His way steadily towards His all-glorious and wonderful triumph that is depicted for us so vividly in the book of Revelation. Not too long ago, we spent a great deal of time looking at the book of Revelation together in our adult Sunday school class. And that book, contrary to so much of what passes as eschatology today, is a book that really is all about the triumph of the Lamb of God, much like the whole of Scripture is. This is Jesus Christ. And His coming and His ministry are packed with significance. As Mark seems to be on pins and needles to just dive right in and get to the glorious work of Jesus Christ for us and for our redemption. And so I ask you again, beloved, have you noticed it? Have you thought about it? You know, as I've been studying this book, I cannot help but to think of those Christians in the catacombs who were meeting secretly, hiding, even as they were hearing some of this. Knowing that very soon, they were possibly going to be facing even death themselves. Horrific and violent death because of this message of hope. And Mark knows their plight. And so he gets down to the business at hand and he just dives right in in order to get to the substance of the hope, the comfort, 
the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, it served to encourage that generation to whom it was originally written. And history has most certainly proved it. And it has served every generation since. It serves even us this this morning currently at this time in this place in the exact same way. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Mark's description of the wilderness as the beginning. It was there that Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist. He did not go into Jerusalem. He went to the wilderness and there in his baptism, his earthly ministry and his wonderful work of redemption was very publicly inaugurated. The wilderness had played an important role in the history of God's people. However, all other wilderness experiences were different from this one. Jesus went to the wilderness to begin the work, which unlike all wilderness experiences prior, He would not fail. There are no disappointments with the wilderness experience of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. We also considered why it was that Jesus would even need to make this trek out into the wilderness with his purpose being to be baptized. It was a baptism of repentance. If there was one thing that we must know about the Christ of God, it is that he had no sin to repent of. Jesus himself was spotless, blameless, without blemish or flaw. He was perfectly righteous, blameless in the eyes of the law. He had never sinned, nor had he had any sin. So why on earth would he need to be baptized with a baptism of repentance? Well, the answer you will remember was that he did not need it. He was driven to the wilderness, not by his need, but by ours. Jesus came and he identifies with us in this baptism. He identifies publicly here with sinners. Sinners like you and I. And beloved in Christ, if you understand the significance of that, then you can begin to understand why it was that Mark absolutely could not wait to get to it here at the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here is the Christ of God, the long-awaited Messiah, submitting to a baptism of repentance for the sin that leads to death for us in our place. Mark immediately gets before us the substitutionary side of our redemption. And thus begins the glory of the gospel. His mission here in the wilderness is to do the work of redemption that we also desperately need. He is being prepared and perfectly fitted to be the sacrifice of our salvation. This is the King of Kings coming not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life for his subjects. We also, in looking at the first part of this wilderness scene and the baptism of Jesus, discussed very briefly the weight of this declaration of the Father from heaven that Jesus of Nazareth, 
The one with the waters of the Jordan running off of him as he was hoisted up from the waters of baptism by the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. This very Jesus was the beloved Son of God in whom the Father was well pleased. We considered, or at least we began to consider what that meant. And perhaps most significantly, it means that this very Jesus, the Jesus that Mark cannot wait to talk about, the Jesus that Mark cannot wait to get before us, the Jesus that is revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture, He is the one in whom the Father has declared His pleasure. And because of that declaration, because of our being united to Him by faith, faith which He gives, we can rest assured that in Him, we too are acceptable to the Father. We too are accepted in the Beloved. We do not have to guess as to His sufficiency and His efficacy to be our Redeemer. Beloved, I'm asking you this morning if you see it. He was declared to be by the Father, the Son, in whom He is well pleased. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope you can see the glory in that. We've only just begun to to plumb the depths of the gospel according to Mark, and I hope that you can see the glory of the gospel even just in this prologue, this first 13 verses of this account. And if you cannot see it yet, then again, my prayer is that you will see it very clearly yet again this morning. Because this glory in the wilderness is not yet complete at his baptism. Jesus does not leave the waters of the Jordan River to go directly to his earthly ministry. Something else must happen. Something that really will set the stage for that ministry that is still to come. Something else here in the wilderness. Something that I fear we all too often miss. So I'd like you to follow along with me in your Bibles as I read this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Hear now the word of our Lord. Immediately. The Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity that we have in worship to sit under the preaching of your word. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit this morning. I pray, Father, that through the power of your spirit, I would speak words that are true. That I would point your people to the truth of the gospel and its application in our lives. I pray for all of us, Father, as we hear these words, that through the power of your spirit, we would be transformed by these words to live more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I fear that all too often the real thrust of this passage or even its counterparts in both Matthew's 
and Luke's accounts of it, becomes lost on us as we search in vain within them for little cures for our own temptations, little remedies for the sin that so easily ensnares us simply by unlocking the code or, or the secret lying behind Jesus' actions. And please allow for me to be clear here as to exactly what I mean by that. Of course, there is always value to be found in considering what it was that Jesus did. In both Matthew's and Luke's accounts, in distinction from Mark's account here, we see the actions of both Satan and Jesus spelled out for us in very great detail. And so, for instance, there is value in saying that Jesus responded to Satan's promptings. He responded to his temptation by countering him and his lies with the word of God itself. It is good to know and meditate upon the word of God and to go to that word during times of testing and temptation. That is true. However, I want to state very definitively here that Jesus did not leave his baptism in the wilderness in order to go even deeper into the wilderness surrounded only by the wild animals. He did not fast for 40 days and suffer under the temptations of Satan himself simply to record for us an example for us to follow of just how it is that we too can remain spotless in the face of our own temptations. That was not the great end that Jesus went to this place of temptation for. And it's precisely why it is that I love that Mark wants us to consider the temptation of Jesus Christ here without all of the details of that event. It means that there are more than just those details, the details of the exchange that took place between Satan and Jesus for you and I to consider here. Allow me to explain. Remember, Mark is wanting to dig right into the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has showed us the critical importance that the baptism of Jesus played in that gospel. And now he tells us that Jesus was immediately taken from that baptism. He was driven into the wilderness to face this time of testing and temptation with Satan. And again, the details here are somewhat sparse, aren't they? What do we know? We know that he was driven to a place of solitude. We do see that here. There are no friends upon which Jesus may lean for support. There's no one to step in and to somehow ease his suffering. There are no tangible substitutes for him to turn towards. There's no one there to encourage him to just stay the course, to come alongside of him and tell him that he's going to get through this. No, it's important for us to see Jesus is alone. Mark makes it a point here. It's Jesus, the wild animals, in the wilderness with the devil. His ministry has been inaugurated. 
However, before he gets to his ministry with the people, he must endure this time of testing, this time of solitude. And he must do it away from those whom he came to save. We've talked now on a couple of different occasions about the similarities that we see in Mark's account of the beginning of the gospel with other accounts of God's people and beginnings. Creation. Israel in the wilderness. Forty days. All of them ring a familiar bell, do they not? And it's for good reason. It's something that we need to think about. The temptation of Adam and Eve. The failure of the first Adam. Adam too was tempted by the devil, though his circumstances were certainly quite different from what we find here. Adam was not alone. He was with Eve. Again, in a way that we cannot even fathom in our own fallen state. They were perfectly one. Adam was not in the wilderness. He lived in, a perf- in perfect harmony with all of the animals and in a natural surrounding completely unmarred by the results of the fall. Surrounded by a lush, beautiful garden that produced delicious food for them to eat and be filled and be satisfied. Even his relationship with Eve was perfectly harmonious. No fall to bring death to harmony in all of creation across the board. Jesus, the second Adam, of course came to much, much less. Here he is in the barren wilderness, surrounded by the effects of the curse, facing the one who desperately wanted to keep it that way. Though there is something similar here. And I do not really want to dwell too much on it because Mark specifically leaves out the details of the conversation that took place in the wilderness as Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and that ancient foe, the tempter, the devil, face off. It is interesting to note that with Satan, the tactics do not change. Whether in the garden with Adam or in the wilderness with Jesus... His method really is the same. Do you see that here? Understand, Mark wants you to know that God has clearly spoken regarding the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he was specific in his declaration concerning him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was the same in the garden. God spoke. He declared. He said, eat of any tree except that one. Here God declares that Jesus is the beloved Son of the Father and that He's pleased in Him. And in the garden, what was Satan's attack as he very cunningly approached Eve? Some of you are probably mouthing the words right now. Did God really say? He is prompting doubt and confusion about what God had very clearly said. 
He is trying to obscure the light of the revelation of God through a veil of doubt. And of course we know what the result was. Adam and Eve fell. And all their progeny, represented by Adam, their federal head, fell with them. Now here is Jesus. And the Father has just declared from heaven that he is the Son, the beloved Son, in whom the Father is well pleased. And Satan's temptation follows his usual pattern. If you are the Son of God, had God said? God had clearly said. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. If you are the Son of God, did God really say? And here we are again in the time of temptation of our federal head. Did God really say? And immediately we should recognize the significance of what's transpiring here. And so, beloved, I'm asking you, do you see it? Have you ever really considered it? This is the second Adam. Coming not back to paradise, but to the sin-ravaged wilderness, wearing flesh that experiences All of the consequences of the fall, sin of course accepted. In other words, Jesus feels pain. He feels hunger and thirst. He knows solitude. The animals around him now lurk and snarl and growl and bare their teeth rather than seeking harmony with the image bearers of the Most High God. The weather, too, has experienced the, ex- the effects of fallenness. Storms, rain, drought, intense heat, dangerous, bitter cold, all manner of natural destructive forces that run contrary to the support of life. Barrenness. These all exist in the solitude of the wilderness. So you need to get a sense of this scene. Again, I know that we must go to the other accounts to really see that, but I think that considering Mark's approach here, we can say rather safely that none of that is lost on Mark. He is placing an emphasis upon this event that forces us to sort of pause, to stop, and to take notice of it. The Spirit, that is, God Himself, drives himself from the glory of his inauguration immediately into this picture of the consequence of sin in the wilderness. The next thing we need to consider and see here are these familiar similarities of wilderness and 40 days. God separated Moses in this way for the giving of the law. You remember, he did not give to Moses the law in his tent amid the camp. He had to go up to Sinai, away from the people, away from the comforts of the camp, where we're told Moses himself fasted for 40 days. And what did he come back to? Unmitigated disaster. He came back to people who could not have come through a time of testing any worse than they did. And what mitigated their failure? Have you ever thought about that? 
What really was their trial? What brutal, desperate thing led them into such heinous sin? It was their schedule. Forty days was simply too long for Moses to be away. And so they made for themselves an idol to worship. And of course, God was not pleased. And there were dire consequences to face because of that particular disobedience. Again, everywhere we look in Scripture, we see the people being tested, tempted in the wilderness, and failing drastically. That picture, of course, builds and builds and builds throughout all of the law and the prophets. That's what sort of sets the scene for what Mark wants for us or needs us to see. Not only here in Mark, but really throughout the entirety of the Bible. And that is the perseverance and the obstinance here with which Satan seeks to thwart the work of redemption in mankind. You understand, he's always been working against it. He was there in the garden looking to destroy the peace which existed between Almighty God and the crowning glory of His creation, man. He's there working behind the idolatry, the doubt, the murder, the strife, the building up of innumerable tiny kingdoms of self. He's here in this scene of battle as Jesus comes to do the work of redemption and to undo the curse. And he's there working against our peace and our comfort in this life throughout the entirety of the Bible. We know it in our own experience. He's rightly referred to as a roaring lion and a ravenous wolf. He is the deceiver. He is the enemy of God and of righteousness. He is the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience. And our weapon against him is what? It's the truth of God's word. It in fact is what God really did say. We must counter the lies that take root in the dark corners and recesses of our consciousness. The sword of the word of God is truly our weapon in this battle. There is much more than that here, but that is certainly here. We must fight against the discouragement that he, the deceiver, the disruptor of peace, peddles to us daily. The answer to his lie is yes. God really did say. And that's the end. Beloved, I want to ask you something. Do you wage war? Do you actually wage war against the unrest? The doubts, the worries, the anxieties, the fears, the foolish and justified indignations that we hold so close. That we are content to try to find our comfort in. The guilt and the sin that are a part of all of our lives. Do you, can, do you counter the devil and his constant arrows with the truth of the word of God? With the answer, yes, God did in fact say. Beloved, I hope and pray that we do or that we will. You see, beloved, the devil is a defeated foe. 
And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But he still perseveres. He's still the father of lies. He's still at work attacking your peace and my peace. You know, I'll never forget the charge given to me at my ordination. I know many of you were there. Reverend Ron Potter in addressing uh, me at my ordination. Telling me that now I needed to be prepared. That I needed to gird myself with the sword of the word to stand always at the ready. Why? Because he said Satan would most certainly be constantly attacking me as the one who stands up and boldly proclaims the truth of the gospel. That Satan would be at work to counter the peace that it and it alone actually brings to the people of God. And I want to tell you after more than a decade of doing so, that it was most certainly then and it is most certainly now absolutely true. It's true. I've had to face more sin in the last decade of my life than I ever wanted to admit that my heart could hold. I have battled and still battle daily against discouragement. I know what it is to be carried away in my own fears and my own anxieties. I know something of the guilt of sin as well as its pollution and its consequences like I had never known before in my life. I've witnessed the attacks of Satan in places where I never would have thought to anticipate them. He is obstinate. He is persistent in his mission. To rob us of the peace that passes all understanding. So again, beloved, I ask you, do you fight against Satan with the truth of the word of God? Which leads me to the third and final point here that we must see. And really, the reason behind Mark's lack of dwelling on all the particulars here. There is more going on here, and Mark leaves it vague in detail perhaps to remind us of what truly is our only hope in both life and in death. We can and we certainly should arm ourselves with the word of God. And we should fight against the temptation that every single one of us knows all too well. But we still know failure, don't we? We still know what it is to stumble and to fall. We still know sin far better than any of us is probably wanting to admit. Though we know the word, though we believe the word, though we trust that that word is the truth and that we are free to obey in any and every circumstance. Though we still desire at times to obey, we still fail. We succumb to temptation. Why? Did Jesus fail in the wilderness? It's a fair question. Beloved, the answer to that question is something that Mark leaves for you and I to consider here. And the answer is, of course, a resounding, no possible way, may it never be, do not even suggest such a thing. He did not fail. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know what, Steve? You just said that we still fail. You said that you fail. There are still very clearly our failures in the wilderness. Why are, why are there still any wilderness failings at all? How did Jesus not fail if we're still failing? 
How am I, how are you still failing if Jesus actually won the battle as the second Adam? Listen, beloved, because there is hope here. And Mark desperately wants for the children of God to know it. Jesus is our federal head in this wilderness. We have to understand it. He is there in our place. He is there as the declared beloved son of the father. He is there on the heels of joining himself to us in our need of baptism and repentance going for us in our place. This is not just Jesus giving you an example. This is substitutionary temptation. And he didn't fail. There is Satan clings to his last hope to thwart the redeemer of man and his work to restore what was lost. Jesus won. Jesus Christ is the victor. Do you understand the implications of that? He was tempted in your place and he did not sin for you. His victory here is your victory. His righteousness is your righteousness. His triumph is your triumph. Jesus Christ is what you could never have been. He is the obedient one. He is the one that prevailed even in this veil of tears in order that you and I might have life. He alone is the one who laid aside his glory and condescended to come and wear this flesh and suffer and die and rise that we might have resurrected life in him by faith that he gives. Do you see the glory in that? Beloved, this is the gospel and Mark cannot wait to tell you about Jesus Christ and his glory. And so you say, okay, I see that. And that is a comfort to me. But what strength does that really offer me in my daily temptation, in my struggle? Because I'm going to tell you, sometimes it's just too much. Sometimes I cannot fight it, I'm weary of it, and I just want to give up. The guilt crushes me. Listen to me, beloved. The victory was secured here in the wilderness with Jesus, the devil, and the wild animals surrounded by the effects of the curse. Jesus has triumphed. And because of it, Satan has no power over your life. I want to say that again. Satan has no power over your life. Satan cannot undo this. Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, has truly thrown down all the power of the devil. You are now reconciled to the Father because... By faith, you have been united to the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we know about him? Well, we know what God really said. This is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. And in him, united with him by faith, beloved, the truth is, so too are you. That's his declaration regarding you. Do you see it? Mark stresses the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ from the very outset because truly, it really is your only hope. It really is your only comfort in life and in death. And without it, there is no hope. But with it, there is no lie that can change the truth of our situation. We are with Christ. We are in Christ. We are seated with Him in the heavenlies. We belong to Him. We are His possession. He has stripped the power of sin and death and the devil away. He has gutted temptation by redeeming us through His precious blood. In fact, we now stand in Him justified. As if we have not nor ever had any sin at all. As if all the obedience of Jesus were truly our own. Beloved, I ask you again, do you see it? Do you see it? That is what this scene here at the beginning of Mark's account of the gospel is truly all about. Is it really any wonder at all that Mark cannot wait to tell us about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Indeed, who knowing what he knows could possibly keep it to himself? So I ask you, beloved, in closing, do you know this Jesus? If you do, then I know that singing his praises this morning is not merely your duty, but indeed is your highest delight. Amen? Let's pray.